welcome back to Entertainment Geekly. I'm Darren Franich. Sitting across from me, the star of the highest grossing R-rated superhero movie ever. It's EW's Jeff Jensen. What? Jeff, <laughs> Crashing disappointment among our listeners as for a brief moment they entertain the possibility that Ryan Reynolds has joined you for a conversation. I do sort of, it does seem to me like thinking back on Deadpool, I, I we were talking about this a couple weeks ago and I realized that part of the reason why they had to have that kind of long origin spread out through the movie was to put Ryan Reynolds's actual face in the movie because otherwise it could have been could have been anyone under that mask. It could have been you. It could have been Jeff me. Jensen. It could it could have been me. <laughs> we haven't seen you and Deadpool in the same room together. So. I mean, that, that, that is that is suspicious. <laughs> that really is. Um, I, I think that most people kind of think like could it be? Um, but you know you know we we were kind of joking about this on 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 on, on email, but I was actually serious like. The one one of the things that really impresses me about Deadpool is the full mask acting of Ryan Reynolds, assuming that's him in there the whole time, and obviously uh, combined with costume design. And what I have to imagine is some CG because the way the eyes move and change on that mask. Yes, I forget if we discussed this in the podcast or just between ourselves, but like the fact that in the movie they did the thing that classically this was kind of a Spider-Man thing where his his mask eyes actually kind of emote for him somehow. Yes. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure Deadpool has also kind of taken that on. Um, but yes, that, that had to have been CGI, I think. I think just the combination of all of that working together, performance, special effects, costume kind of creates a really great... Like the best full mat, the best full mask superhero performance ever. I'm trying to think of what would even be in competition with that. Would would RoboCop be in competition with that? Because I've always pointed to Peter Weller in that movie. I, I, I guess that's not full mask though, is it? It's not. That's 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 chin acting. It's a lot of good chin acting. Um, I think that uh, that uh, oh my gosh. Um, I'm I'm suddenly blanking on his name, but the actor who played Rorschach in the Watchmen movie. Oh, uh, all I can remember with him now is the Bad News Bears. Why is that? He was he was in everything for a second there. But yes, that actor was was quite good. Was the Rorschach mask? Was that CGI? That was CG. Yeah, that, they, that, that, they used CG. That was CGI to, to move the, the ink blot stuff around and. Uh, but but his voice that he lent to it, and continuing our tradition of just not remembering names. What is his name? Wait, okay, you keep you keep talking for a second, Jeff. I'm gonna look this up. But I was thinking of of, of like yeah, like fully masked uh, actors. Uh, we have did did Kickass have a full mask? Uh, Kickass had well, his, his eyes were showing. His so eyes that doesn't really count. And yeah. Jackie Earl Haley, Jackie who of course Earl played Haley. Rorschach in Watchmen, he was mostly covered for a lot of that movie. And he was good when he wasn't covered, I was going to call him Haley Joel Osment before I realized <laughs> oh, that's God. really not his name. I would love... Can we get a Rorschach origin? Can we get a before Watchmen colon Rorschach yeah, Rising right. that's all about young Haley Joel Osment? Um, Jeff, uh, what an exciting day we have here. Really? We're, we're, de- we're debuting a new segment... Which, uh, with our usual strict regimen of preparation, we just came up with the name for it right before we started recording. It is called Hyperdrive Exchange. Hyperdrive Exchange. We don't think that that's been trademarked by anybody. Um, Jeff, uh, we're just going to be throwing questions at each other. Questions thrown at each other, like... It could lead to long conversations. It could lead to really just short takes. Um, it could lead to arguments. It could, yeah, it could, it could get heated. 
It could lead to blood feuds. It could, but but you will give me a question. I will give you a question. We'll go back and forth until yes. we are out of questions. Yes. Some questions we've prepared each other for. Some will be surprises. Yes. It's always a surprise uh, here at Entertainment Geekly HQ. Jeff, do you want to go first? I want to go first. I want to go first because uh, uh, let me just start here with uh, maybe one of my more newsier questions cut to the newspaper whirling towards the camera like what's what's on the headline once it gets to the camera well oscars <laughs> you know we have we have oscars coming up this weekend um and uh and 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 one of the oscar nominees is, is for for best picture is this sort of arty foreign film made by a reclusive director and of course i mean mad max fury road um, and uh, one of the great uh, geekly movies of, of, of recent years, I think. That's if I had to vote, Darren, I would say that I for best picture. Right now, it's it really is a slugfest in my heart and mind between uh, Mad Max Fury Road and Spotlight. But I would give it to Mad Max Fury Road, um, you know. And and uh, I, I don't think it's going to win, which is a shame. So Mike, because of perhaps. The the, the uh, lots of context for this question, uh, but you know, just like we're the, starting the, off the, great. The, yeah. We should tell listeners this was this was intended to be a nice light kind of like shorter uh, sh- shorter episode after our yeah. Dark Knight uh, episode last week. So we'll see how this turns out. Exactly. But you know, like uh, you know, beyond like Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, winning, you know, most of my favorite geek movies of all time. Have ne- that have been nominated for Best Picture have 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 never won. So Star I, Wars lost in any hall, of yeah, course. Yeah. So my um my question to you is, uh, what's your uh, uh, what what movie that's near and dear to your heart that could have been in the mix for winning Best Picture in the geekly genre? Uh, do you wish could have won Best Picture? Ooh, that's a really good question, and I have to really think about that one. Um, while I'm thinking, I will just say full agreement with you that Mad Max Fury Road, if, if there were any justice in this world, and of course there isn't because we are all just off in the wasteland being chased by our own personal Immortan Joe, uh, that, that would definitely be the winner um, because I just absolutely love that movie. But that is a good question because... You know, one of the things that always strikes me about the Oscars is that when it comes time for best picture, I I do often feel like the films that win tend to be quote-unquote serious, and that can be in a few different ways. They could be they could be literally serious, you know, something like The Hurt Locker, which is about, you know, the war in, in, in the Middle East that is you're just dealing with a lot of really heavy topics, or they can even be, you know, with Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, which I believe is still the only fantasy movie to actually win Best Picture. Even there, you know... That's not a fantasy, like, you know, Willow. That's a fantasy, like, this is, you know, the greatest fantasy novel of all time being adapted. And there's sort of a level of... So, I, you know, when I think of my answer to that question, I, I, I sort of wish... Like, hmm. If it could be something more along the lines of... 
Well, you know what? Let me just like take away all of that because I think my answer would be 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, because I just recently rewatched 2001: A Space Odyssey. I like how I was trying to find some sort of like lighthearted, whimsical science fiction movie, and instead I landed on 2001, the heaviest movie of all time. <laughs> but uh, I just uh, last year, my girlfriend and I rewatched that movie at uh, the Hollywood Bowl. Occasionally, does those things where the orchestra is playing. It was an, an incredible experience. But what struck me about that movie is that you know, there's a real humanity to it that I think I had forgotten or, or maybe just had kind of overlooked when I was a kid and was just so into, like, the crazier stuff. Um, there's a humanity to it, and I think that the questions it asks, just, you know, the fact that I've seen it so many times, it bedevils me in the way that I think awesome, geekly stuff uh, should always bedevil you. And the fact that, you know, the older I get, somehow the more I relate to Hal sometimes huh. is, is something that really strikes me. So I think I'd say 2001, which, which I think was recognized with a few nominations, but uh, yeah. de- definitely did not win Best Picture that year. Yeah, you know, it's uh, something that you said really resonated there. You know, over the past several weeks and uh, month or so, I've been trying to watch as many of the Best Picture nominees, uh, this year's Best Picture nominees, and I've had I have watched all of them with the exception of Room, and I really don't know if I'll be able to get to it before before Sunday. But I've I've watched all of them, and I've kind of like watch them once a week, a one a week, or um, sometimes two in a week. And uh, I've been updating my favorites on my Facebook page as I go in a ranking. And uh, and so, but uh, Mad Max Free Road has been consistently at number one throughout this entire viewing process. And a lot of the comments I get from friends is like, you know, I... I, I really like that movie too, Jeff. Don't get me wrong; I really enjoy it, but I, I I just can't vote for that for like best picture. I, I, there's an obligation, I think, when people start thinking about Oscars toward importance. Yes, that ends up like trumping everything, including your own enjoyment of a movie. You yes. know, like uh, it it could be the most artfully made movie with some good themes, good good messages, but. You know, if if it if it, if it misses out on some importance or perceived importance, you 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 can't give yourself over to it, and uh, I I feel like I, I I've made that mistake in, yes. in my own, and I and I do think it's a mistake. I think that there's nothing wrong with like voting your passion, and of these movies, the one that I'm most passionate about this year was Mad Max Fury Road. That said. Uh, if I had to answer my own question, I think we should answer our own questions. I was just going to ask, yes, yeah. Yes. Like I too would now that I've myself. said now that I've said that unpopular cult film two thousand one <laughs> a space odyssey right, right, right. real original Franich <laughs> I, I too give myself over to one of the most ponderous coldest movies ever made two thousand one a space odyssey which um, is also one of the most brilliantly made movies of all time and uh, is just kind of seared on my consciousness and uh, it just inspires me to so many different kinds of thoughts and thinkings and reflections and uh, I love the story about the way that movie is made I love like the, the, the mystery of it all I love uh, it's, it's cautionary tales about you know mankind <laughs> and mankind's relationship to technology um, so close seconds are of course Star Wars I mean for a movie that means so much to us and our culture I mean, I, I can't deny that I so wanted that to win. But my biggest heartbreak ever in the genre 
was the year that E.T. lost. Oh, I so wanted E.T. to win. Well, and also that was one of those years where, and you know, it's always fun. Somebody will go back and look at this Oscar year and have a real conversation about, you know, what what did what did Oscar get right? What did it get wrong? What is you know what award they, they give? What does that mean for where the culture was? But the E.T. losing to Gandhi thing just seems like something that sticks out more and more every year as kind of an example of, of what we're talking about. Like you know, not that Gandhi is by any means a bad movie. Spoiler alert. I haven't actually seen Gandhi, but but E.T., which seems, which probably at the time seemed, however good it was, seemed smaller, because it is smaller, it's about kids in suburbia. I mean, talk about a movie that is just etched in our national myth now, so many years later. Um, and kind of from the same era as, as you were talking, Jeff, uh, one other thing that I came up with was a movie that also feels modest in scope, until maybe you watch it 30 or 40 times, as a lot of people have. But I think Back to the Future, for being mm. such a completely fun movie where, you know, <laughs> except except perhaps for its depiction of the situation uh, in Libya, which I'm not sure we ever get full clarity on in the movie. <laughs> um, you know, there is a movie that is just, you know... It could be a kind of farce from the 30s or 40s, and it's about, and yet the more you watch it, the more it, what it has to say about family and, and about, you know, the changing times, and maybe it helps that now we're further away from the original movie than it was from the 50s, but that's one that, I, I'm not even sure if it was nominated in its year, but that's definitely another, from the from the Amblin factory, that perhaps Oscar could have paid more attention to. Well, but so, uh, uh, besides Mad Max uh, Fury Road, what's been your favorite of the best picture? No that you've seen well definitely spotlight um I, I think my current ranking goes something along the lines of uh, mad max fury road one spotlight two uh i really like the big short that's up high oh big short is so good yeah, yeah. did you feel like because i i feel like i've been talking to a lot of people recently about how much i miss Oliver Stone's 90s movies, which, you know, there was that incredible run. You can kind of start with The Doors if you want to, although that movie is is occasionally awesome and occasionally just, you know, utterly incoherent in in, in the worst way. But then there's like JFK, Nixon, Natural Born Killers, even kind of U-Turn in Any Given Sunday. And, And Big Short scratched that itch for me while also remarkably being funnier and having more clarity about its subject matter than I think. I mean, part of the fun of Stone was that he was always just like ravenously chewing into some piece of history or some piece of the American culture and just devouring it. But some of the, the fact that The Big Short does all that and is as experimental, but also does teach me something, is 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 pretty remarkable. Yeah, I think I might have liked The Big Short more if I actually was one hundred percent confident that I learned something. <laughs> now, I mean, I would say that's one of the uh, the, the big. Uh, uh, selling points and, and, and commendable qualities of the film, which is, I think they take a complicated subject that completely devastated our, our economy um, that many people don't understand. They gave it a really good try at explaining it. I think I understood it enough to un- appreciate the film and even have some conversation about it afterward. But at the same time, I wasn't completely sure that I understood everything. <laughs> but I was massively entertained by yeah. the attempts to it, uh, the attempts to explain it, and the, the strategies for for making it dramatic and entertaining. And uh, 
great performances around. I, I also really enjoyed Bridge of Spies. From Bridge just of like Spies. Old school, uh, this old school, almost like style uh, uh, drama. That is a really fun movie. Yeah, yeah. It is. And I don't know, it, it does make you feel as if, you know, Steven Spielberg, who now is at this phase where, you know, talk about coming a long way from E.T., now it's almost a surprise if he makes a movie. It's a surprise if it doesn't receive several Oscar nominations. But this one, it's really something special. And yeah, like, it's treatment of surprisingly difficult subject matter like it, it the, the the story is not by any means a coherent through line and the fact that the Tom Hanks character is really interesting like from the from the trailers you sort of thought he was just going to be a kind of Frank Capra Jimmy Stewart surrogate and I feel like yeah there's a lot going on in that movie that I really enjoyed yeah. um, but uh, uh, since since you offered your ranking Jeff I'll just quickly offer my uh-huh. my ranking of, of the best picture uh, nominees Mad Max Fury Road the second time I saw Mad Max Fury Road and the third time I saw Mad Max Fury Road so, <laughs> so we'll, those be, three we'll be crossing be our fingers I think George Miller I, I, I've each year I always call it insane upset which never happens in the actual show. I think he might win Best Director. I know I'm not sure that our Oscar expert Nicole Sperling would agree with me, but I have I have high hopes. Um, I got a question for you, Jeff. Yes, uh, Emily Blunt, who is mm. so good in Edge of Tomorrow and a lot of other movies. Uh, she is apparently currently in conversation with Disney to star as Mary Poppins in a new Mary Poppins movie. It's the latest in a new Disney initiative to, shall we say, refurbish some of their most iconic classic films from the new Beauty and the Beast coming out next year with Emma Watson to last year's Cinderella uh, to, I think you could also kind of argue Maleficent, which was a kind of uh, reinterpretation of Sleeping Beauty. Um, I I haven't really seen any of these movies. I'm, I'm cynical about them only because, you know, one of the things that's interesting about Disney is it's always kind of balancing incredible kind of technological progressivism with a certain, uh, you know, artistic, not quite conservatism, but, you know, it's always kind of digging into its past to kind of recreate new things. Um, I was just wondering, uh, are there any Disney movies from, let's say, the, the 30s through the 60s or 70s that you would actually like to see receive some kind of remake or see Equal or reinterpretation? Is, is there anything that kind of jumps out to you from that era of Disney as as they continue mining that era for more films? Jeez, um, that's a really good question. Um, the shorter answer could be no. By the way, <laughs> well, um, having been kind of sort of involved in an attempt to turn an old story Disney brand. Uh, into a modern feature film uh, filled with that sort of like progressive spirit of technological achievement uh, in the form of Tomorrowland. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I want to see Disney remake Tomorrowland. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to get another shot at that. Uh, but I mean, in, in, in fairness, that was a different thing because that was very much a you know that was that was really taken from the ideas of Walt Disney, which you know by the way, if if, if we want to talk about why they should do more Fantasia, I'm totally there. But I'm just kind of more wondering: is there anything from that kind of classic Disney animation era that you think you'd actually want to see redone in 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 the modern way? So I mean, Mary Poppins is a live action film, right? So can I pull from any oh, movie? Absolutely, from that period? absolutely. Um, yeah, um, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I agree! Yeah, That's I mean, exactly yeah. the one that I was thinking Absolutely. of. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, that you could have a lot of fun with that. 
Um, I'd love to see today's special effects uh, combined with a, a director who has an eye for a contemporary spectacle to like take us into the ocean and create an adventure that deals with themes like technology would no doubt have to deal with theme, themes like uh, um, uh, environmentalism. Uh, that could be, but in but in, in in the stride of a really fun all audiences adventure, I think yeah. that could be really cool. Well, and because I mean, like uh, the original Twenty Thousand Leagues movie, which starred James Mason as Nemo, and I think Kirk Douglas was Ned Land in in, in that one, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, yeah. Sort of like like constantly playing his banjo, and I think he might have had a pet dolphin also. That I I, I, I may be conflating that with, with SeaQuest. That to me is a movie that I, I really loved as a kid, but I definitely think that as far as Disney's take on the material, which is obviously in the in the public domain, so probably anybody can do it that's just something that there's a lot of richness there that you could do I mean in my head I was sort of seeing you know Andrew Stanton taking some of the incredible you know underwater visuals of a Finding Nemo and bringing it to a more kind of action adventure mindset but yeah and and more to the point you know there are classic Disney movies that are classics and shouldn't be touched but 20,000 Leagues I'm kind of like I really like the original movie but there's there's more to be done there I I think there's yeah definitely more to be done and over the years there have been there has been talk of filmmakers taking on most notably david fincher i believe has been kind of like orbiting it forever mm-hmm. um, i'm sure i'm sure he really relates to the kind of nemo character too that yeah. that, that, that great kind of ahabian kind of like 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 um, obsession that feels very, very finchery to me yeah and is is I think I recalled reading something recently that maybe Brian Singer is now kind of a, a, attached oh, to. Oh, that's interesting. To do that. I didn't realize that. That could be kind of fun, too. Yeah, I guess, but to me, it's right. I, I, I'm i kind of more with you. I, I I guess the reason why I think of it as a Disney thing is I want to see the kind of G-rated adventure version mm. of it. It just seems like it's the kind of material where you can do a lot of heavy, interesting ideas, but do it in a in a way that, you know, appeals equally to kids and parents. Which but that's 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 a that's a That I'm, seems easy though. Well yeah, I mean I think that you would really need to have I mean again kind of pulling from my Tomorrowland experience and by the way, I mean it was a very wonderful experience, a very complicated experience. An experience in which like Disney like backed us 100% in, in a really inspiring way. Like, um, But I think that learning some lessons of our own sort of like box office performance, and not that box office is everything, but if you're going to spend a lot of money on that kind of spectacle, um, I think one of the lessons that probably I'm sure that Disney's learning from Tomorrowland is uh, we we got to make sure that we make a movie for everyone, mm-hmm. and uh, and that maybe especially if you're going to compete in the summertime marketplace, I mean, uh, rating matters. Mm-hmm. That's rating interesting. Matters. I mean, like, like G versus PG versus PG thirteen, PG PG thirteen, especially if you're talking about the Disney audience, because the, there there is an audience for the Disney brand out there. And they are family. No, there isn't. There is. I'm yes. not sure there's any evidence of that, actually, Jeff. Where do you where do you get where do you get off where do you get off making elaborate pronouncements obvious. like yes. that? But Disney, unlike any other studio, like has has an audience. They have, but that's an audience that really, uh, for whom you know, the family audience that are looking for quote unquote family friendly things, and they're really looking to that rating to tell them something about the film. 
and uh, you know they they're probably attracted to a G to a PG uh, a movie, but at the same time, that's a that's a rating that doesn't really mean a whole lot to say teen boys or young men, and that was for example with, with our film Tomorrowland. That's what we started hearing is, is that uh, was that was that men teenage boys really weren't sure that this was a movie for them. Um, but meanwhile, even though I believe that you know we uh, I think we went out with a PG thirteen rating, um, family audiences uh, like looked at our film and wasn't necessarily sure that PG thirteen did that mean it was too old for for their for their family and. Um, Pixar seems to be, they seem to have somehow figured out the code. And I'm sure maybe there are some Disney Animation Studios movies that have also done this. But the way that Pixar movies, I believe, have all been G-rated, unless I'm, uh, unless maybe like Wally went out with, uh, with a PG, the fact that those always seem to, they, they do so many things that speak directly to me as a 30-year-old man and the only important person as far as demographics go, <laughs> as, as far as I'm concerned. The fact that, like, I, I remember watching Inside Out with my girlfriend, and that was a movie where we, we were both in tears, and we looked around, and every other adult in the theater was in tears. And during those scenes, the kids were kind of like, yeah, like, I'm sort of bored now, but then there was fun stuff happening for the kids, too. Like, that's interesting. Yeah, but if they, if they ever make uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I guess... The, the point that I think that I was getting at with the rating is that that will be an interesting conversation internally mm-hmm. um, and, and w- with with the filmmakers, which is like PG, PG-13, what version of this material um, uh, is, 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 is going to be right for our audience and, and right to recoup uh, what will most likely have to be a two hundred million dollar like special effects extravaganza. Oh, I mean, like I'm fortunate that I, I can say this since I'm currently still a member of the childless population of America. <laughs> but the MPAA is just like I th- th- that that is such a frustrating part of the movie landscape for filmmakers, and I think for I think for audiences too. I sometimes wonder to what extent the kind of gray areas that define the different rating zones have really affected cinema in in in, in a lot of ways. I mean. This, this point's been made elsewhere much more eloquently than by me, but the fact that there are things you can do in PG-13 that you can't do in R, but what those things are and what things get you in NC-17, it just seems very confusing to me. Yeah, I'll give you the... Uh, I, I did not ever get the report myself, but what I heard from my collaborators on Tomorrowland was that our film like, was one of the few films in MPA history that got a split vote from the ratings board that they were tied PG or PG-13 they they couldn't decide Whoa. in fact the story that i heard was that they actually voted on it with a with a with, with not a full panel and they were tied so they had to bring in the people that didn't make that screening to break the tie but they were tied <laughs> so we had this PG PG-13 tie between the board and i think the the rules are whatever is that in the event of the tie, the studio can just choose. So we had a varying, and you know, I, I, I wasn't high enough, on, high enough on the food chain to participate directly. The in most important debate. person at Disney, yes. <laughs> yeah. Here is well, but, now but, that's but, but that became the, the uh, from what I understand, an intense conversation. So which one of these ratings do we choose? Oh, I'm just picturing the like twelve Angry Men esque uh, <laughs> arguments that were breaking out at at the MPAA over uh, Tomorrowland. Yeah. Um, all right, so twenty thousand leagues under the sea. That's our. That's we, my choice. We'd want to yeah, see that's a your new choice one. too. Yeah, that's my choice that. too. Yes, yeah. I'd like to see that done. You 
would again. like to see a G version that could bring in the whole crowd. And I'm yeah. saying I, 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 I'm, I'm definitely envisioning a more sophisticated film that probably would be PG, PG-13, but that would be a tough call for Disney. I'd prefer an amateurish, uh, shoddily done. <laughs> well, while we're you know while we're kind of like fantasy casting here, specifically why I want Disney now to do this is I think there's a great Maleficenty take on Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea that actually would work better than Maleficent. Um, just because I I, I want to see that whole story from Nemo's perspective, you know, because oh, you know yes, you know like, right. like 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 from the original book and through the Disney movie, Nemo is kind of fundamentally the other at times yeah. both, both racially yeah. and societally and you know the Disney movie kind of gave us these sort of like English characters to hold on to and maybe they could still be in the movie but to me I, I, I kind of want Nemo to be the character who is both you know this this heroic figure and perhaps in a G-rated context is 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 struggling with elements of his personality but I just I, I just feel like that's a character that I think Disney could explore in a really interesting way uh, for, for kids we'll we'll, we'll We'll see what happens. I'm sure they'll get to it sooner or later. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what else we got, Joe? All right, so I have a question for you. Ooh. Um, uh, we are coming off another weekend of great performance at the box office. Buffo box office. Buffo box office by Deadpool, which is really surprising me, to be honest with you, in terms of like that, that, it, that, it, that it had the huge opening weekend that it did. Um, and now continues to be some kind of cultural phenomenon. Um, and as this phenomenon is played out in the in the culture, um, we are now catching wind of something that we might call the Deadpool effect, which is that studios seeing this sort of like surprising, unprecedented success of an R-rated superhero movie are now looking at perhaps can, can they um, create R-rated spin-offs of their own thing or slightly edgier at least spin-offs of, of, of their of their films. We're already hearing, for example, that that Fox wants to make an R-rated Wolverine film. Um, we now hear that Transformers, which they're, you know Paramount is going to give us like three more Transformers films, but now they're going to spin off out of that, or maybe one of those films is going to be a Bumblebee individual character spinoff, slightly lower budget, most likely edgier in sensibility, probably not going to be R-rated. Um, but my question to you is, you kind of see where I'm going here. Um, <laughs> now that you've uh, depressed me, you can ask me the question. Uh, Deadpool grossed more than anyone expected. It looks to be a game changer. Are you open to more movies with a Deadpool sensibility, or are you dreading it? Well, uh, I'll be honest, Jeff. I thought I had an answer for this, and then you said Transformers, and now it's now it's really confusing me. Um, now, to be to be clear, I I don't know. I I, I don't just, know what, what yeah, kind of creative sensibility that Bumblebee will have. Yeah, uh, I mean. Uh, I think I fundamentally am in support of the Deadpool effect. Um, when I saw the report that Wolverine 3, Fox was now going for an R rating, I have to admit that actually got me really excited. Um, I'm, I've been excited about Wolverine 3 in general. I really enjoyed the Wolverine, and this sort of is a uh, reunion of a lot of the people who made that movie work, including, of course, Hugh Jackman. And on some level, I do think that... Wolverine as a character, it seems as if there is a lot more to be done if you have an R rating. And I, I don't just mean in terms of violence, although, you know, some violence is cool on screen. And, uh, you know, the fact that Wolverine literally has knives on his fingers and his superpower is stabbing people, it has felt 
a little baby proofed that he's been in nine movies and he's never drawn blood or maybe he's drawn blood just once in a very redacted PG-13 way. Um, so I think I'm fundamentally excited about that. Now, what I'm less excited about is something that uh, director James Gunn, who made Guardians of the Galaxy, brought up uh, uh, after Deadpool did so well, which was this idea of, you know studios see that Deadpool is a success and they don't see, you know, this was a really different thing that people were excited about because it was, maybe original is a strong word, but it was a very new kind of a take on this material. You know, studios don't necessarily see that and take that lesson. They see, oh, this was a, in my opinion, you know, mature and kind of the most 16-year-old boy-related way. And, you know, there was a lot of more, you know, the R rating was more for stuff that you would see in kind of like broy comedies than you might see in the kinds of, uh, for lack of a better word, grown-up material that I sort of appreciate. So I, you know, my hope is that the Deadpool effect means that with an R rating, maybe studios will now look at something like, say, Sandman, not necessarily Sandman, but something along those lines, whether original or based on a comic book, and whereas before they would have said, well, there's no way to do this, this is an obvious R rating, and, you know, we can't even consider this, maybe now they'll say, well, okay, like, you know, maybe this isn't quite Deadpool. Uh, I think that's probably the <laughs> the biggest understatement anyone's ever said about Sandman is that it's not quite Deadpool. But, you know, we now know there's an audience for something like this. So I, I think I'm excited about the Deadpool effect. Uh, what what do you think, though, Jeff? Yeah, I'm dreading it. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I was greatly entertained by Deadpool. Um, Deadpool was a, a very well-made th- version of what it was. Um, but it certainly drafts off the fact that it sort of like exists in opposition and, and, and contra relationship to everything else that's out there. I mean, there's superhero movies, there's the Marvel brand movies, and there's other kinds of superhero movies and our take on superhero stuff. And then Deadpool comes and just like blows that up or or or, or finds finds a, a point of difference. And I and I and I look forward to more Deadpool adventures. Um, and I, 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 I like what you're going for there, what you're describing in terms of uh, it, would, it would be great to see a Wolverine movie take advantage of the R rating to do something a little more mature, a little more sophisticated in theme and in story with that character. I, sure, take advantage of, you know, there was, there's always been, even in the comics, this tension with Wolverine as a character as he became more popular where he was completely defined by this berserker rage and this um, this anti-hero sensibility and, and, and a willingness <laughs> to kill um, which made him kind of a dicey proposition to put him forth as a, as a hero um, to, to kids at least and, and to the audience in general so how do you deal with that? Well, you, you make that tension the defining thing of his character, which is, can, can he control that berserker part of him? Um, but we are always kind of wanting to see him kind of cut loose, right? Um, so sure, it would be kind of fun to kind of see him kind of like in that mode. There is that, yeah, 16-year-old boy part of me that would love to just see him go nuts like that. Well, um, I, I mean, but, 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 but that said, that said... Like the the, the most, uh, what I would want to see if if, if 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 that's what if there is a Deadpool effect and 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 people are going to like go for R-rated superhero movies, 
my hope is is that they go for original, sophisticated, R-rated superhero movies. Most likely, and this is what I'm dreading, is, is that what we will most likely get is studios telling their filmmakers, you got to do that Deadpool thing, which is like max nihilism, lots of violence, sex jokes. Like well, Because, cause, yeah, like what I was thinking about actually was <coughs> what you don't want to have happen um, is what it feels like kind of happened with 90s comic books. Right, exactly. Where... You know, the as we've discussed uh, frequently on this show, especially last week with regards to the Frank Miller effect, you don't want material that doesn't call for that kind of take to be forced into that take by, you know, like, I, I just, I think about a lot of comic books in the 90s that were mainstream, where the sensibility was not mature. It was just kind of, uh, you know, douchebaggish, frankly. Uh, you know, and, and there was just, you know, Deadpool, I think what a lot of people have reacted to about the movie is that there is an odd sweetness to it. Sure. You know, as much as it is a snark bomb uh, of a movie, I, I think it goes out of its way, maybe a little bit too much for my tastes, to be kind of romantic and to make the central characters likable. And, you know, I, I just, I, I wonder if... Yeah, which, what you don't want to have happen is for, you know, DC and their kind of movie initiative to say, you know, well, Aquaman, here's a character that, you know, maybe some people m- might disagree on, but certainly, you know, here's a character who, if you wanted to, you could do a kind of sweeping, uh, lush, thoughtful adventure movie. Um, but we really need to add in more, like, dick jokes, basically. Like, yeah, that's that's what you don't want to have happen. And I guess th- there is the fear of that, right? There is the fear of just skipping right to the kind of... I, I always say, I, I always, you know, say image comics, and it wasn't just image comics, but of, there's the fear of skipping right to that kind of image comics, like, we're dark and we're grim sensibility, yeah. which I wouldn't like. I was, I was uh, recently uh, watching uh, this new Netflix television show, Love, which is this new anti-rom-com rom-com from Judd Apatow, who has uh, made a whole career out of himself of, for himself here in the new century of deconstructing romantic comedy around a really kind of like salty uh, sensibility, um, a sense of humor, but with this underlying sweetness. And it hit me uh, as I was like really sinking deep into love and liking it that most likely the, the thing that prepared us the most for the Deadpool phenomenon um, is Judd Apatow and his and that whole sort of school of comedy that that very kind of edgy uh, uh, edgy romantic comedy with a, a, a sweet sweetness to it because mm-hmm. uh, that is very much Deadpool is uh, is a romantic comedy with like. A, a massive amount of violence, and, and it's it's even it's even the you're so right about that. It's even the Judd Apatow kind of romantic comedy where the drama between them is not that they're. It's not the kind of classic romantic comedy where the drama was that here are two personalities that don't seem to get along. Will they ever get along? You know, like it's it's not the kind of you know what it is is the Judd Apatow style where it's like actually these are two very you know copacetic people who get along famously from the first time we see them, and the only thing blocking them is something internal on the guy's side. And in Deadpool, it's literally just like, oh no, she'll think I'm ugly now. Which, which, you know, to me connects to the Judd Apatow model where, you know, in, in, in Knocked Up, it's, it's not that, you know, 
you would think watching that movie that the drama of it would be like, well, like now they're pregnant, now they'll kind of embark on this adventure and over the course of it, they'll kind of really fall for each other. And instead in that movie, it's kind of like, well, like we're kind of always together and maybe at the end we're not together because you have to kind of get your stuff together, but you'll get your stuff together. So I, <laughs> I'm, I'm really intrigued by that. I, I'm always intrigued by the kind of Apatow effect, especially as we kind of enter the second decade of it. And I think you're really onto something with that. And talk about something where... I really love Forty Year Old Virgin and Super Bad and Knocked Up, um, but talk about a, a you know having an effect on pop culture. There are plenty of Apatow imitators that right. missed a lot of what made that special. That yeah. just sort of littered the kind of movie landscape for years afterwards. Before before we move off this topic, I just want to kind of acknowledge uh, something that I've been wrestling with too, which is a, a theme that you talked about, which I really resonate with, and we talked about on the last podcast about the Dark Knight. This idea of an industry learning the wrong lessons from a phenomenon um, and how something that does something different, the lesson that we wish to, that, they, that, they, that, they, that Hollywood or, or an industry takes away from that is originality, which is innovation and embracing that versus just sort of like emulating certain sort of superficial sensibilities that, that, that people resonated with. And I just kind of want to acknowledge how idealistic and dreamy to an almost unrealistic Bernie Sanders degree that is. Um, And that maybe we need to get over that because I was kind of reflecting on the fact that that's just business as usual forever and ever in Hollywood, right? Taking the thing that works, that breaks through that, that unexpected thing that captures our imagination brings us a new sensibility and then replicating it. I mean, we're, we're, we're recording this in a week in which ABC uh, just lost its president um, uh, of programming, and uh, and 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 a new and a new person is, is is taking his place. But this is a guy who kind of like uh, championed uh, um, ABC sort of like killer lineup of quote unquote sticky dramas. You know the Shondaland stuff, the Buzzy stuff, the social media stuff, things like Scandal and 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 and, and all of that, and. We're we're about to get a new new one of those kinds of shows from maybe it's called The Family, which is bad. Um, and how I was just kind of reflecting on how there's another example of, uh, or you just see how CBS like gets a hit like CSI, and then it just kind of programs its yeah. entire network. Do it again with procedurals. Um, and uh, and how something original becomes replicated and then becomes a cliche that kind of kills. Uh, 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 a, uh, you know, promising stuff and interesting stuff. Right, yeah. I mean, like, you know, deep down, I think whenever we talk about this, uh, all we want are good things. And I, I think especially we often want original things. And so any any time Hollywood takes a lesson from something, which is, you know, let's do something, you know, people seem to want something different I guess I'm always optimistic about that, only because, you know, for me, the superhero movie genre, really, after the last couple of years, was just feeling so locked in place. And the fact that, you know, we're now one step closer after Guardians of the Galaxy and after Deadpool to a Wolverine movie where the playbook can expand a little bit. Like, the, the fact that we're one step closer to a Wolverine movie 
where, you know, the opening is set to some Guardians of the Galaxy-esque disco hit from the 70s, and then he carves through his enemies with a Kill Bill level <laughs> ultraviolet. You know, I'm not saying that that's bad or good for cinema, but that to me is more exciting than another Wolverine movie that is locked into the sort of superhero movie archetype yeah. that was established 15 sure. years ago. Absolutely. So we'll see. Uh, Jeff, uh, I, I want to move on here. This week we saw the debut of 11 11 period, 22 period, 63, based on 11 slash 22 slash 63, the Stephen King novel. Uh, based on your review, it's yet another failed adaptation of Stephen King. Um, I just have a question. Uh, what what are your favorite Stephen King books and short stories? Okay, okay. I kind of shook the, I, I kind of changed that up on you. That was a different question. That than, is a slightly than I different you. question. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know... Uh, uh, a word about my C plusy, I think, review of eleven twenty two sixty three. I'm actually. I wish the grade was actually C plusy. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, our grading system doesn't quite allow for that kind of specificity. <laughs> um, I'm actually in, in the process of of uh, reconsidering that review, and I might return to the show and write something more about it later because reading a lot of other reviews of the show, there, there are some people that were equally like, eh, on it, like I was. But there are some been some other really thoughtful reviews out there that kind of got me rethinking the my experience and wondering if I kind of went into it with kind of a wrong attitude. Because I was really looking forward to the whole Stephen King does time travel kind of aspect of it all. And uh, this is like an... I believe eight to ten hour miniseries that um, really at that length is not designed to support that kind of concept. It it really needs to be thought of as a sort of uh, you know a, a character driven emotional journey of an episodic journey of a guy going to the past, having a series of adventures, having a series of relationships, meeting people, encountering their stories before kind of ultimately seeing if he could uh, accomplish the mission that he sets out to. So I didn't really look at it from that point of view. I kind of, I, I was sort of locked in from the beginning of like, what are Stephen King's rules of, of time travel? Does the show kind of honor those rules? Um, how, how does changing the past kind of like th- that kind of stuff play out? Um, Had you read the original book? I'd read some of it, but not yes, all of it. I, I, I read the first 250 pages of it, and uh, I, I kind of remember enjoying what I read, but that was one of those Stephen King books, and I think he himself would, would admit this. He, he He's written some really long ones, and that was one where it was just so long that I, I, I kind of lost the thread a little bit, um, yeah. as opposed to some of his other long books, which are incredible. <laughs> I, was, I was also put off a little bit by the James Franco performance, which is interesting because this is, this is definitely a point of contention among a lot of critics. There's a lot of people who love the James Franco performance. For me, I just kind of sensed an actor who was struggling with uh, with the reality of what he was dealing with, and maybe the uh, the, the the concept of it in general. I thought he there's a he's almost in every frame of the uh, of the show. He's often acting alone with himself, and it was in those moments where I kind of felt like. He's just not into it. He's just so low energy. I, I kind of didn't understand or even believe why he was going on this adventure. Uh, and reasons emerge as he goes into the past and forms relationships. 
but that initial catalyst, that initial call to adventure, like I just like, why is he even doing this? It just makes no sense. You're saying, I mean, like uh, James Franco, I've always thought, like, if there's any actor in Hollywood who is secretly prestige twins, it's probably James Franco. You're saying this is the not good Franco twin. There, yes. there's, there's there's the good Franco twin who does Spring Breakers and Milk and... This has, is the has, Franco who's phoning it in. Right. Right. And, and, that guy appears occasionally. But which is interesting because that... that Sounds like from 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 reading more about the production, that doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, it sounds like that he's expressed a lot of passion for the material. He directed an episode, um, so maybe I'm open to like, man, did I just read him wrong? So um, I want to revisit it to answer your question. Most of my favorite Stephen King stuff has already been made, um, and uh, and my frame of reference for Stephen King books, I mean, like I I, I started reading a well. Around the time I, around the turn of the century when I got married and started having kids, I started reading a lot less books unless they were Harry Potter. Um, and, I'm just uh, imagining you reading it to like your to to your uh, youngest child. Like uh, I gotta I gotta kind of page through this. But there was definitely a period of time where like Stephen King was everything. You know, Christine was a defining reading experience for me, and seeing that movie was a big event for me because I loved that book so much. And being kind of let down by it, um, it was peak Stephen King fandom for me. Um, Pet Cemetery is one of my favorite novels, like I think ever, mm-hmm. and so. All of those didn't really kind of pan out to great movies, in my opinion. Um, uh, so, but of of, but my favorite Stephen King stories include Pet Cemetery. Um, they include uh, the Dead Zone. Really like the Dead I've Zone. I've never read the Dead Zone. Dead Zone, uh, which. Cronenberg made into a movie and a, and a good one. Which is good. Yeah. Well, so now uh, to go to the question that I was gonna gonna uh, going to originally ask you, Jeff, what Stephen King material that has not yet been adapted, of which shockingly there is probably hundreds when you count all his short stories, what would you want to see made into either a, a film or a TV show? Uh, some some kind of screen experience. Yeah. See now there, I would say I think I've seen everything. Mm. You know. Um. Um. Uh. But with that said, my. Um, you mentioned his short stories, and I do love his short stories. Yeah, he's a great and, and like Skeleton Crew oh. was, a, was a book that I think I carried around with me throughout like a, a, a for a period of my life when it came out, and I just I just love like. I used to take the bus everywhere, and I would always like read a short story. Just, his books are short stories. Just every couple pages, there is something that will stick with you. I mean, I always think of there's that great short story, The Jaunt, uh-huh. which is like set in the future, and it's about some kind of like they've invented this sort of intergalactic transportation, teleportation. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes, like teleportation, and it's such a short, weird little story, and the ending is just horrifying. And then was it? I'm trying to remember if, if it was Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Or Skeleton Crew, where there are a few kind of chapters from a book he never finished called The Milkman. Do you remember this stuff? That stuff is, I mean, it's just these great little, it gives you an appreciation for what he can do. Because you sort of see, like, I guess I could see how that could have become a novel. But now it's just this weird thing that kind of exists in in the world and so creepy. Yeah, the the, the short story from Skeleton Crew that... Stuck with me, made a huge impression immediately, and has stuck with me over the years. Is Mrs. Todd's shortcut? Now, this is this is the one about uh, a, a guy who kind of tells the story of a woman that he met 
um, that uh, was obsessed with finding shortcuts between it from from point A to B, and would keep on finding these alternative routes that would keep keep on cutting down her time between these two routes shorter and shorter and shorter. It becomes, you you know, initially he kind of like doubts her claims. It sounds physically impossible to travel the distance that she's describing and the amount of times that she's she's saying, and he kind of comes to realize that there's some kind of mystical or perhaps maybe wormhole way in which she's doing it and she's accruing some interesting costs from uh from like she's she's getting younger but she's definitely entering dimensions that are pretty scary (laughs) and um but i that was just a great example of just a high concept stephen king idea that he executes brilliantly but in kind of like chasing it purely it has this sort of like very this this resonance this thematic resonance the idea of uh, obsessively f- being obsessed about finding shorter paths anyone who lives in los angeles and has to drive anywhere like can knows that obsessive quest of like how can i get my complete my 30 mile commute home what's the shortest amount of time i always think about that when i'm stuck in traffic and thinking like what alternate route can I take? Yeah, no, you know, this is this is like uh, the uh, woman in, in that book went on to invent ways. I, I, I think I, I actually she was the. Yeah, I, I just love. I mean, and the great thing with that story too is I always remember there are just images that stick out to me. And one is I believe it's set in Maine with Stephen King. That's usually a, a fair bet. But there's the moment where the narrator, you know, she he's kind of talking to this woman and she tells him that you know Maine actually isn't as big as you think. And I remember he he actually measures it on a map. Yeah. And he says like and, I don't know. Something about that has always struck me as oddly maybe central to what makes Stephen King great because there's just this great foundation in in, in all of his stuff and especially in his great novels where these people do just feel very approachable and very human. Yeah. And he's he's so good at conjuring up a fully realized character out of thin air. And then I think the thing that often bedevils filmmakers is the things that usually make movies scary, you know, which are, you know, you could re- you could reduce it to, you know, to tone, to sort of like a rigid adherence to a supernatural or, uh, you know, otherwise scary story. You know, King doesn't really do that. Like, he kind of roots... He's all about the characters, and it's almost like the movies tend to lead backwards, where they say, oh, it's it's about a pet cemetery, so we got to have, like, scary dead pets. And it's like, no, you kind of need, strangely, you need the equivalent of 100 pages of just this family being together, and what yeah. happens to that family is so interesting. Um, yeah, I, I always think of um, the one that I'm always shocked hasn't been made yet, especially now that there's been so much like it, is uh, The Long Walk, one of the Richard Bachman books. Mm. Um, in general, I actually really like his Bachman literature, which... I think he himself has said is kind of darker and stranger than his mainline Stephen King stuff. Um, his mainline Stephen King stuff. That's a weird way to say that. Um, but The Long Walk especially, which is the story of very proto-Hunger Gamesy and a dystopian uh, future. Um, there's an annual event where uh, young men, I think teenagers, just set off on a walk and, uh, you know, they just walk until they can't anymore and when they can't, they get shot and the last person left wins everything. Oh. And, I mean... Again, hard to imagine that as a movie since it's you know <laughs> surprisingly difficult, but also not that cool to look at. Just kind of people walking forever, but that that is one that I mean, talk about just you know. I, I always say it's Stephen King is a great writer, but if you read him when you're a teenager, he's the greatest writer ever. And yeah. I remember that book just putting it down and just thinking, well, that's that's it. Nothing's ever going to get better than this, and I'm, yeah. I'm not sure it really has. Mm. Um, 
Yeah. What yeah. do you got? What yeah. do you got for me? Um, you know, I, I've never read that story. Oh, but, you haven't. Uh, but uh, I, you're, you're capturing my imagination for for a, for a movie or TV show. I, I'm imagining almost like a, a lost like serial where it's it, it this this would be the challenge of it is is that. Uh, that we we would capture the saga of a long of a group of characters on a long walk, and we would cut to flashbacks to their past. Ooh, um, I like that some, a lot. But can we stretch the? Can we can we turn that walk into something dramatic and keep them walking for like six seasons? Oh, that's interesting. Well, well, Jeff. I mean, is there is is there an endpoint in mind when when we start? Yeah. I mean, like that's well, really would. the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like I like that idea too because then like in between episodes you would just constantly be like now suddenly they're walking through a desert. That's strange. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, yeah, that's oh I I like that a lot. Yeah. yeah, a Stephen King TV show seems like it would work better than a movie just because his style tends to be really tangential and, and and you need kind of more character elements in there. That being said, I, I loved Under the Dome as a book and the TV show kind of ran into yeah, some problems. Yeah. So. Well, speaking of scary stuff, I have a, uh, uh, in TV shows, I have a question for you, which is that the uh, the X-Files wrapped up its revival uh, on, on Monday. Um, if we are posting this on Monday. It's, it's, it's wrapping up today. So it's wrapping up tonight. And we have not been privy to the final, unfortunately. We, we, we have not seen the finale, so we can't talk about that. But uh, curious to know, based on what on the five episodes that you've seen, what are some high, high points? What are some low points? And on the whole, was it a thumbs up or thumbs down? Um, because we've already talked so much about Mulder and Scully meet the Monster, uh, which I consider an absolute masterpiece of the X-Files episode form of the TV episode form that alone kind of justifies me giving a thumbs up to the entire endeavor uh, but I, I, I want to call out something that for me just you know sticks out as a real high point of what I appreciated about the X-Files revival when I appreciated it um, and it's uh, the moment from the episode Babylon when Mulder kind of apropos of not very much sets off on a lysergic adventure which involves David <laughs> Duchovny doing the complete dance to Achy Breaky Heart and then segueing right from there into a very you know uh, Greek mythology-esque uh, window into some kind of under netherworld um, you know that episode in general I had plenty of problems with but uh, you know in talking to Chris Carter about that scene um, it really brought home for me the thing that I love about X-Files maybe that I love about a lot of television shows in general which is that you know I mean there's such a willfulness to that to kind of saying like alright our character is going to embark on a kind of spiritual dream sequence journey you know, we are the X-Files, we are a show that a lot of people hold up to certain standards, and, you know, especially at this point in a short season, maybe we'll have to do something important and something, you know, mythology-oriented. Let's have them dance to Achy Breaky Heart. Yeah. I don't know, I just, I, I, I love that, and I love that, you know, to talk about low points, there were parts of this revival that felt to me as if there was a lot of anxiety, perhaps, about coming back and providing people with maybe what the X-Files thinks it has to be now. Um, we'll see how things wrap up tonight, but I'm not so sure that the serialized elements uh, worked that well. I I'm definitely not sure that the kind of running... The decision to take William, Mulder and Scully's son, to kind of run with that as a key foundational point for the characters, I'm not so sure that worked out as well. Um, but it just, you know... 
if if the you know the reason why I want to see more X Files is I I so appreciate that. In this time when there's so much great TV, but it can feel to me like even the TV shows that I love are kind of on rails, whether, you know, narratively something like Game of Thrones seems to really feel the need to, you know, we have all these things moving, you know, we need to each episode kind of follow what this character's doing and that character's doing and cut between, and there's not, not as much time for kind of just experimentation and, and fun. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm really going to take that achy, breaky heart moment as, you know, a, a real foundation proof that there is still something in the X-Files and, and maybe still something in the kind of television that X-Files uh, uh, produces. Uh, but uh, what about what about you? Uh, I like what you had to say a lot. Um, I, I think that uh, that that moment in particular was a fun one. I think that Mulder and Scully meet the were-monster definitely high points and for me the proof of concept that uh, that this show um, it just affirmed a lot of the values that I love about the show. The themes the characters, the inability to kind of like have a, a, a lot of different tones, um, to be spooky, to be thoughtful, to be funny. Um, and uh, I, I think that that episode captured a lot. And I, I think that in general, I think that uh, these six episodes of The X-Files definitely prove that, uh, that, that Mulder and Scully are characters that we can grow old with. I think the show was actually at its best when it kind of took seriously these notions of them at middle-aged. Um, I think the show was... Um, and, I, and I think that um, it, it can still be a, a, a vehicle for really fun, inspired storytelling. Um, I, I'd love to see Chris Carter like work with this, this, the same writers again. Maybe bring in some other writers that from the past that he couldn't get. Gilligan, yes, Gilligan, for sure. <laughs> or, or maybe even bring in new blood, like uh, um, that. That could offer uh, a, a, a fresh take uh, a, on at least the the you know not necessarily Mulder and Scully. I don't think they need a fresh take, um, but but you know just in terms of like the story of the week kind of thing. Um, so high points, yeah. Uh, uh, Mulder and Scully meet the Were Monster. Um, low points. Yeah, I, I think that the attempts to, to commune and, and connect with our political moment and what, at least what, what, what Chris Carter thinks our political moment is and sync the conspiracy up to mirror or intersect with or be an allegory for issues of surveillance, issues of government working against its people, um, bringing in other things like you know 9/11 conspiracy theory. Um, yeah, I would say none of that worked. None of that. <laughs> I, yeah, I just, I just, you know, like it, it definitely just tried way too hard at the very at, and 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 and, may, and just not expressed well enough. And I would say that I love Babylon too. I think that even more so than the dream sequence. The device of using doppelganger Mulder and Scully, um, uh, Einstein and Miller, genius and uh, great instinct on Chris Carter's part to know that he wanted to deal with themes and ideas that were really personal and important to him, that risked being ponderous. And so he clearly asked himself the question, how do I make this entertaining? And he comes up with this device of these mirror, uh, and, and, and these, these, these mirror twins to Mulder and Scully. He made it very funny. 
And that's exactly the right instinct yeah, to follow. Such and, and just you know, such a simple idea that it just could not have been well done, more well done in every way in terms of the execution of it, in terms of the actors they chose. I thought that you know, Lauren Ambrose has been great yes. in a lot of things, but like Robbie Amell, who I think I, I'd only really seen when he did that CW show a few years ago. I thought he he as a kind of younger, maybe more extreme older the Tomorrow People, yes, uh, based on one of my favorite British TV shows as a kid. Um, but yeah. <laughs> I just, I, yeah, there, there was a show that, and again, for me, I think the, the, the central part of Babylon didn't work as well for me, but the fact that exactly what you're saying, everything about the execution of it felt like him saying, I want to explore this, but I also want to make this entertaining, and maybe I also want to kind of entertain myself to a certain extent, and I, I want the opportunity to kind of take the tangents that a, a, a more straightforward TV show won't. Um, but you said the central thing that didn't really work for you. You mean the terrorism Yeah, one. The, the terrorism stuff and, and, and the mom stuff and, and that that just, that didn't work for me. But again, I, you know, to go back to what you were saying, love the idea of being like, we are smash cutting from terrorism yeah. to a, a, a deeply <laughs> trying to be moving portrayal of a mother's love to achy breaky heart to young Mulder <laughs> and Scully. So I, I appreciate that. And you know, just to, to riff off something you said before I ask you uh, my next question, um, I, you know, talking about politics what I would love is what if X-Files comes back and you know with what the X-Files is now it feels as if Chris Carter could call up I don't know Frank Rich and say like hey like I have a TV show that the only requirement is you need to have the characters Mulder and Scully investigate something supernatural. Do whatever political thing you want. Or, you know, Frank Rich or any kind of more politically oriented writer. You know, Armando Iannucci. It just it seems like that now at the X-Files is, is entering this new phase of its life as a going concern. That's something that... Um, really excites me. Uh, I have a question for you, Jeff, about another Fox TV show. Um... It was just announced that The Simpsons will do a live episode wherein, for the first time in Simpsons history, we don't often say that about The Simpsons anymore, uh, Homer will somehow interact live with the audience. I'm, I, I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure if that means that you know, we'll just kind of have like Dan Cal- uh, Castellaneta's mouth will just appear over a static image of, of Homer Simpson. Or you know, you, you know, you know, uh, perhaps it'll be like in, uh, at the end of uh, Itchy and Scratchy and Poochie where, where the image just kind of freezes and he's doing a live read. Um, live episode of, of The Simpsons, Jeff. Brilliant or further proof that The Simpsons is now out of ideas? Um, you know, I, to, to take the latter idea, has it run out of ideas? I mean, the fact that it has lasted as long as, as it has um, in, in relatively okay shape um, dazzles me. Um, it's not one of my favorite shows on television. Um, as you know, the, it feels a little bit like like I'm I'm not in its moment. But it, it reminds me of the rake joke. Remember the, the the great rake joke where it just like first couple times it's funny, then it kind of stops being funny, and all of a sudden it gets really funny again <laughs> because it's just like this is going on absurdly long, and then it just keeps on going and keeps on going and keeps on going, and then now you're just like, okay, well, how long can it go? I just want to see that now. Like, how long can you go? That's kind of like my attitude about The Simpsons. It's just it's 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 the rake joke like incarnate. It's it's just it's gone on and it's it keeps on going on, and I kind of want to see it go on forever now. Yes, um, yes. So 
Yeah, but it's at the same time, it, 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 it obviously needs to be doing things to remind us that it, it exists. Because when something lasts as long as that, it just becomes wallpaper and you kind of forget about it. Um, see the fact that, like, it's not one of my favorite shows and I check in on it routinely mo- uh, uh, every once in a while. Not routinely. Not routinely at all. But as a matter of, 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 of maintenance for of, of my job, you know, like... I'm the TV critic. I gotta check in on shows. That's basically my relationship. That's exactly. Right that's every, every morning you you show up for work and you declare to everyone, "Here I am, the TV critic." I have to check in on things. Um, so yeah, so so it's gonna do stunts like this. This is a stunt, um, and uh, I will watch because I want to know what the how the heck do you do a live version of an animated show? So I, I will watch. I'm, I'm not completely impressed by this. I dread the idea of actually having to write about it. I don't think I, I really want to, um, unless it does something really spectacular. <laughs> oh, alas, but alas, I am the TV critic, so I must. <laughs> why, why, cruel fortune? I really want to make sure that I was joking when I took that tone. Uh, I did not hold myself in that regard. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I so interested from a technical point of view yeah. what the heck are we getting into i'm uh, not like like woohoo about it either. yeah i i just find that whenever i do check in on the simpsons which of course i do as well just as a normal human being because i think everyone kind of does um what, what i just wish for the simpsons is that when i was watching it and of course it is now possible to be there are multiple generations of people who've watched the simpsons and i look forward to the day 10 years from now when someone who's my age now declares that years 2007 through 2013 were the best simpsons years <laughs> but i i do you know what really struck me as a kid more than anything was that the further in we got with the simpsons that was just a world that got bigger and bigger and what it could do you know i i always remember the 22 short films about springfield that's just an episode that was so unlike anything else on television at that time and what a moment to realize like oh you actually could just do a million of these characters and i do find that when I check in now, The Simpsons seems so focused on the family and, and those characters have quite naturally, after so many years in existence, have maybe gotten a little more vaguely defined than they used to be. And I, I do find sometimes, you know, I'd be perfectly happy. I, 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 I do hope that The Simpsons knows that it can kind of do whatever it wants to and will still watch. And, yeah. and I, I, I hope that as a show and a creative endeavor, they don't feel the need to sort of just stick with what worked for the last 10 years. But we'll be watching a live episode. Um, let's do the last two questions quickly. Yeah, my last Jeff. question for you is uh, about um, uh, to, to, to revisit another topic that we recently discussed in our um, recent um, podcasting. Um, uh, back to the Berlantiverse of superhero TV shows. Berlantiverse! <laughs> we need to have a little sound effect for that. Um, we have it. There it is. There we go. There we go. Didn't just, you hear it, Jeff? Sorry. We paid, big, we paid top dollar for that sound effect. <laughs> Sample that and let's repeat that all. Berlantiverse! Often. There we go. Uh, the Flash wrapped up its Earth 2 two-parter last week. Um, and I thought it was okay. I don't think it was awesome. Oh, that was okay. He's a TV critic, folks. Um, I, I, it was more about its own story as opposed to like exploring Earth Two. Um, so and uh, so it was okay. Um, How does it compare to a Fringe's season two finale? Oh, Fringe, Fringe season 
two finale, oh, season two finale. When you first kind of like dug fully into the yes, alternate universe. Yes. And you met the alternate universe versions of that all the characters. That was Walter and his, what, what, what was what was that finale about? The, the, that was Walter and a group of sort of like uh, uh, of, 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 of almost superhuman kind of people. His Fantastic Four hit squad. Like going over to the other side to rescue Olivia? Um, they, no, 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 no. Uh, in season, the season two finale was when you first met the fringe group of the, of Fringe's alternate universe and it was Olivia with different hair um, and different versions of some people but then, yes. then Peter was w- w- went over to that uh, universe where he was from originally if, if, if you don't watch Fringe this is really confusing <laughs> he went over there and then they went there to get him back yes. it, it ended with I remember our rescue behind. mission yes yes um, and uh, and that was better than what we got from the Flash okay. for sure good yeah. to know but I, but, you know, I liked it didn't love it um Earth 2, though, probably one of my favorite comic book ideas. Um, what's your favorite Earth 2 character? Um, so uh, I go I, I go classic for a couple of them. Uh, oh, oh, sorry. So you asked j- just favorite character. Well, I'll give a quick shout-out to Earth 2 Green Lantern and Earth 2 Flash. Uh, Earth 2 Green Lantern was the guy with the cape. Earth 2 Flash had the helmet. Cool stuff. But my favorite Earth 2 character... Um, and I think he still counts as Earth 2, although honestly the canon kind of confuses me now. But it's the character who we now know as Superboy Prime. Whoa. Um, okay. Who, uh, in the classic golden age of comics, he was just Superman when he was a boy. And he was having adventures in Smallville, which would in some strange way later inspire the TV show Smallville. Um, and, you know, this is where you really get all the elements of Superman that Zack Snyder doesn't know or care about, like a crypto and uh, just the notion that, Super- that Superman was fighting younger versions of all of his villains when he was that age. He went to the 30th century to hang out with the leads of superheroes. Um, that's all good stuff. I've always just, as I get older, I find I, I like that stuff more because it is just so innocent. I also love the fact that in uh, Infinite Crisis, the which was two or three DC reboots ago, they turned to that character, who in every way is just the kindest, gentlest, most wonderful superhuman being you've ever met, and they turned him into a malevolent cosmic supervillain. Um, and as much as there are a lot of elements of that crossover that I think don't work. It certainly pales in comparison to uh, the crisis on, on, on Infinite Earths. Um, where that crisis leaves Superboy Prime, and it, and it, the, in fact the ending of it is him sort of entrapped seemingly forever, uh, scrawling, scarring himself with his super strength, scar- like, like carving an S into his uh, chest and promising he will someday escape. Um, I, I just, you know... That is just something that I I want to hate it because it is just such a complete bastardization and and gritification of of a character who shouldn't do that. But I always just found there was something so, uh, for lack of a better word, balls to the wall about that reinterpretation. So I I like both versions of of Superboy Prime. I I, I love our our, our completely different reference reference points for comic books because, like, your reference points are... Are, are relatively modern and 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 because I'm a relatively modern kid. That's right. <laughs> I am so hopelessly seventies, eighties. So for me, Earth Two is largely defined by the crossover issues of the Justice League of America from the seventies and early eighties, as well as when they were crossing uh, over with like the Justice Society. That's right? right. Yeah. So the Justice Society comics that were uh, drawn by, I believe, Joe Stanton, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and also. Uh, 
All-Star Squadron uh, uh, by Roy Thomas and Rich Buckler. Like for me, that was um, uh, very, that for me is, is Earth too. Um, as well as Crisis on Infinite Earths and, and, and that whole depiction to it. That said, my favorite Earth 2 characters, um, can I just say that I think the Earth 2 counterparts of the Justice League all have like better costumes. Justice Society oh, awesome costumes, costumes. Are, are, are better than, I think, Earth 1 costumes. You got, you got Flash and that helmet. Yes. You got, I'm, I'm trying to think, what else do we have on, like on that Green, lineup? I, I like Earth 2 Green Lantern with the cape better than like Earth 1. Totally. I mean, it, 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 it's just like such a more, and I guess it is a more classic look in a way, but he has the cape, he has that kind of splash of red. It's not just all green. Green. And I want to say that the Earth 2 Batman, no yellow shield around the, 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 the Ooh, bat logo. Boy. I'll, I'll look into this. Because I always hated the yellow shield. Um, I always like kind of like the naked black bat on the gray suit kind of thing. And I think the Earth 2... I want to say that that's one way they, they distinguished the two Batman. I think you're exactly right. Was there anything different? Because I remember Earth 2 Superman at some point, he was like older than Yes, Earth he had gray hair Superman, around the right? ears. Yes, yes, yeah, yes yeah. gray yeah. hair around the ears. That's, that's basically there the big be, difference. There I think be, S was maybe a little designed differently. I, I, I think you're right. No, yeah, S might have been a little smaller and there may have been more more yellow or white in there. Maybe. I'm not sure. But but yes, yes, like old Superman with, with Reed Richards' hair. That always kind of struck me. But Robin was also a member of the Justice Society of America had Earth 2 Robins costume at least back in the 70s and 80s full body costume no like little brief things I always liked that version of Robin better um, but my favorite characters uh, of, uh, of, um, of, of of Earth 2 were um, you know because the Justice Society Earth 2 was sort of created to honor and contain the the golden age of, of DC characters you, you get a lot of the sort of pulp inspired characters living on Earth 2. So you get uh, guys like Sandman. You get Dr. Midnight. And you get Our Man. You know, these kind of like like uh, knockoffs of the shadow, um, uh, the, the, the grim vigilante thing that has that kind of one gimmicky kind of, uh, of, of thing. I always liked those characters. Uh, with uh, Dr. Midnight and Sandman. The golden uh, Earth 2 Sandman, who is not... The Sandman that we now kind of assign that name to the, uh, the you know dream of the endless. This is a Sandman that had a uh, that a, a gas mask and uh, and was a was a, was a was a gritty vigilante crime fighter detective type. I've always kind of thought that was a cool because his whole thing was he had a gas mask and his gun was was a gas gun. That's right. right. It would knock people even, out. Even knock people out. I've always kind of thought like how come we can't get that going in Law and Order? Like that seems like a really good like nonviolent, uh, maybe nonviolent is a strong word, but that's a that's a pretty good way of kind of like you know, you know. Uh, subduing an, an issue without necessarily like uh, yeah. you, you know getting anyone hurt. Yeah, I've, I've, I I was kind of like so is is are, are those guys kind of more who you gravitate to in Earth Two then? Yes, I do. Yeah, I mean, uh, like in terms of my, my imagination is most captured by by them for sure. Um, last question of the hyperdrive exchange round, Woo-hoo. Jeff. I like it more every, every time we we hear it. Um, it was announced last week by Kanye West that Kanye West is working on a video game called Only One, and it's apparently about uh, his mother going to heaven. It looks kind of like Journey, and I'm very interested in it. Um, but uh, if you had chameleon dollars, chameleon, all chameleon dollars, uh, what musician's life story would you want made into a video game, and what kind of video game would it 
B. Jeff Jensen's face is in his hands, everyone. Oh, you can tell he's he's imagining that that Limp Bizkit video game based on Katamari Damarcy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, you know, um, I, I have to say that my first thought went immediately to Prince. I would play a Prince video game of some sort um, that turned his crazy life and, and, and musical mythology into some kind of absolutely like lunatic side-scrolling video game <laughs> somewhere between uh, Limbo and Super Mario Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I do like the idea of a, of a tiny little prince running around uh, knocking coins out of boxes, <laughs> uh, kind of humorous. Oh great! And then, and then like uh, whenever you get the right power up, he just becomes the glyph. He's 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 like a superpower oh, invincible go. glyph. Yes. He's just sort of like like, like mo- moving straight to the level. I like that a lot. And he would be antagonized by some form of Morris Day in the time. The oh, beautiful. I can't think of a better. I my my response was, uh, and this was not thought up, uh, thought out about anything. The parts of Grand Theft Auto games that always hypnotize me are the parts where starting with Grand Theft. Auto San Andreas, you can really customize what you're wearing. Not just, you know, like in Vice City, you could kind of customize a full outfit, but in San Andreas and beyond, you do the shoes, you do everything. So I, I just think just for that part alone, I want to see the Grand Theft Auto version of the life of, of David Bowie. I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm not quite sure how the mythology would fit in. There would need to be some spiders from Mars at some point. It would need to be Mars and I think Berlin would be the two main settings for it. Um, and then uh, you know at some you know at some point perhaps you begin as a young uh, wannabe rock star slash alien and then uh, things kind of uh, go on from there. But just just for the kind of like like dressing sequences alone, I think it would be a worthwhile addition to the canon. See that see that's not funny. That's actually cool. <laughs> I don't want to see that. Yours was cool. What are you talking about? You made, I was just going made, for crazy. You, you, made ref, you made reference to Limbo, so that, that oh. sounds pretty cool to me. Um, Jeff, I think this was a great hyperdrive exchange. Hyperdrive exchange. Hyperdrive exchange. Um, we'll be back next week. Uh, thanks for listening to Entertainment Geekly. Jeff, thank thanks for being here. Uh, thank you. Thank you.